Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and America's favorite trope. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today you've got me, Shayna Roth. I'm a senior producer at Slate. I remember my first dead girl. I was eight years old. I was in the grocery store with my mother, and it was one of those big shops where it's groceries for the family for the week and then some. And this was well before self-checkout, so my mother was chatting with the cashier and putting the food on the belt one thing at a time, and I was bored. I'd looked at all the candy, touched all the lighters and other random impulse buy items in the aisle, and now I was on to the magazines. I noticed her hair first. Big blonde hair that seemed to take up the entire cover of the tabloid. Her lips were a shiny purple-pink color, and she was wearing a large dress. It was huge, and between the sleeves on the dress and her hair, it took me a minute to realize I was looking at a child. It was John Benet Ramsey. Past Santa Claus in his sleigh and a double row of candy canes, deputy coroners brought the body of six-year-old John Benet Ramsey from her upscale home. Neighbors described the young girl as beautiful and polite. In 1995, she won the Little Miss Colorado pageant. Boulder police won't comment on her cause of death, only saying that she wasn't shot or stabbed. They are investigating her death as a homicide. So far, no arrests have been made. John Benet Ramsey was a six-year-old pageant star when her parents found her dead body in their Boulder, Colorado home on Christmas in 1996. There was a ransom note. There was strangulation. There were grieving parents and obsessive, by-the-minute press coverage. Anyone with any consciousness in the mid-90s knew about the death of this little girl. You couldn't escape it. That magazine I saw was one of multiple covers emblazoned with John Bonet's yellow curls and lipsticked half-smile. She was everywhere. The perfect victim. The fact that the case has never been solved means every few years or so, new headlines pop up. Like September's NBC News headline, John Bonet Ramsey Cold Case May Have New Leads. Or the October Denver Gazette's Does Year 27 Mark New Beginning in the John Bonet Ramsey Investigation. And new documentaries continue to be made, like the 2022 iteration of the Suburban Nightmare series. We're 911 emergency. We need police. We have a kidnapping. Sorry, right, please. Hey, what's your name? Hi, I'm the mother. Oh, my God. Please. I heard Patsy scream. It was a horrible scream. We found this ransom note. The male DNA, it's never been identified. It will tell you who is responsible for the murder of John Bonet. This needs to be looked at seriously. Like, wow, we got this guy. I wrote about her, John Bonet, in my first true crime book. And while I tried to do her story justice, I still grapple with its publication. Was it okay? 
Was it enough to critique our cultural obsession with this little girl while at the same time providing more content? Was I just another vulture making, though arguably not a lot, money off the exploitation of a girl that had no say? And not just her. In the book Cold Cases, I also wrote about Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, and Natalie Holloway, the teen who disappeared in 2005. Was it my place to write about these women? Not to mention consume so many television shows and movies about fictional dead women in my off time. When I sat down to write another collection of true crime stories, which came out about a month ago, I knew I didn't want more dead white women. I veered more into history and evolution of criminal procedure in the book called Between Two Wars. Yes, yes, there is one serial killer, but for the most part, it's heists and train robberies and even spies. I didn't feel the weight of this book like the last one. But here's the thing. Whether I'm writing about them or not, whether I'm watching fictional versions of them or not, dead girls are everywhere. From Twin Peaks to Maravistown, with all the true crime content in between, pop culture has a thing for dead girls and women. But it's evolving, changing, dare I say, improving. Alice Bolin wrote the book on dead girls. Literally, her book is titled Dead Girls, and it came out in 2018. When we come back from the break, she's going to join me to talk about how things have changed since it first came out, what the dead girl trope says about us as consumers of content, and so much more. Stick with us. listeners if you're loving the show and want to hear more please subscribe to our feed new episodes come out every thursday and while you're there you should check out our other episodes too like last week we had a great episode that was all about anime and how anime is pushing boundaries for representation of gender and relationships it's a great episode you're not going to want to miss it Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shayna Roth, and I'm joined now by Alice Bolin, author of Dead Girls. Alice, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Alice, your book is called Dead Girls, and you reference Gone Girl, the book and the movie. For those that need a reminder of this cultural touchstone, it's about a married couple, and the wife, Amy Dunn, goes missing. The husband is obviously suspect number one. His name is Nick Dunn. And after some unreliable diary entries, we learn that the wife actually staged her own disappearance and made it all point to her husband as punishment for his infidelity. One of the parts of the book that became just a real, like, capital T thing was the cool girl speech that Amy Dunn gives as she's revealed herself to be the mastermind of her own disappearance. It was recreated in the 2014 David Fincher movie starring Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. Nick loved a girl I was pretending to be. Cool girl. Men always use that, don't they, as their defining compliment. She's a cool girl. Cool girl is hot. Cool girl is gay. Cool girl is fun. Cool girl never gets angry at her man. She only smiles in a chagrin-loving manner. 
and then presents her mouth for fucking. Now, as I read your book, I really couldn't help but think of that speech. But instead of cool girl, I kept thinking of like a dead girl speech. So in this vein, can you describe the dead girl as a cultural fascination? Sure. I was actually thinking like, well, the dead girl is a cool girl in a way. Like it definitely is connected because even like the things that people I think of as like the prototypical dead girl, like Laura Palmer from Twin Peaks, she was a cool girl. You know, she's kind of mysterious. She's like mature for her age. Older men are obsessed with her. And like that she has this mystique, you know, which is like the definition of cool. I think that cool girl speech in Gone Girl, which is a book, and I love the book and the movie, is about the ways that women perform for men and that, you know, women want to be perceived as cool, compliant, you know, not laid back, low maintenance. And that, you know, the dead girl in a way is the ultimate. She's she's super low maintenance, you know? She's like, she's just a body. Like, there's a way in which it's about simplifying women in order for male consumption. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about this connection is that in studying the killer's inner life, it becomes a form of victim blaming. So when a woman is murdered, we look at her and there's like a level of victim blaming to it. But when the man is the one that murdered her, we often want to look at what's going on in his inner life and what happened to him. And I thought that was such an interesting way of looking at this dead girl phenomenon and sort of like why we're so fascinated with it, because we treat the men involved in this as being these subjects of of what happened to them and the women as being what did they do to deserve this? Yeah, I think it makes me think about Gone Girl because when the book came out, I do remember especially men saying to me that they thought it was sexist and offensive because it is very subversive. The fact that Amy is the one who staged her own murder to, you know, blame her husband. But I think in a way it's so obvious that this is the nightmare of a man, that he is afraid of being accused of something he didn't do. It is essentially that the dead girl killed herself. She manipulated the man into killing her. And the other way that I would go with it is that I think in these stories, quite often the murderer and the detective are almost like a twin figures who are both obsessed with the dead girl, you know, and her body, but in from two different directions. And I was even thinking about how in, well, in Ann Carson's um, essay, The Gender of Sound, which is about the ways that female voices are kind of cast throughout history. She writes about how Aristotle, he equated women with, quote, what is curving, dark, secret, evil, ever moving, not self-contained and lacking its own boundaries. And it made me think about how, in a way, the dead girl being such a blank canvas being such a, you know, kind of this site to act out, you know, men's histories, desires, you know, confusion. It It's like she stands in for mystery, like she is almost like a metonym, like for the concept of mystery. And I feel like her silence is really the dead girl's most quintessential aspect she doesn't speak. She can't say what happened to her. And the man has to speak for her, the detective. He has to be the one who says what happened to her. 
you point to several instances of the dead girl. You mentioned that, you know, Twin Peaks, Laura Palmer is sort of the quintessential dead girl. But the dead girl trope and our fascination with dead women really goes way back. In your mind, who is the original dead girl? So I was thinking about this question. I think it's super interesting. Like I was thinking about virgin martyrs, like in early Christianity. Ooh, way back. Okay. (laughs) Or even still like venerated within like the Catholic church Um, or like Juliet from Romeo and Juliet or Bronte heroines or even like stories like ghost stories like Evelina or early early novels a lot of the time dealt with a kind of a dead girl, but usually those are, they're almost like they're, they embody this power and agency of women in a way, even though the way they end up is not necessarily great or they, they have this alterity to them. Like this, like maybe like lesbianism or, or whatever, something that makes them a little bit other Whereas the American dead girl, as we see it now, there's something more puritanical about it. Even though you could say that about some like Laura Palmer, she did have something about her maybe that made her um, more kind of dangerous or uh, more mature for her age, mysterious. But at the same time, like, I think this idea of perfect victimhood and of truly robbing a girl of agency, especially before she maybe gains her agency, is so American. But what I thought about was, what had occurred to me even just today, was Marilyn Monroe in a lot of ways is the original dead girl. Not that she was murdered or that her death or life story necessarily plays into that same trope, but the way she's been treated since her death The way that her image is just licensed to be on everything, you know, her body is everywhere. And the movie, Blonde, that was last year where people talked about it a lot, how much, even in death, she was being re-victimized. Her body was treated as public consumption. Hugh Hefner is who made me think about it because, you know, now he's buried next to Marilyn Monroe. Is he really? Uh-huh. And he and he bought that grave in the early 90s. Wow. So it was always his plan. And he never he never met her, but she was the first Playboy Centerfold because he had bought these old calendar pictures of her to publish. So she never consented to be in Playboy, but her image was is, I mean, literally eternally tied to his. And it made me think, oh, my gosh, like, this is the dead girl. Like, this is her. (laughs) Wow. I did not know that about Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner. But it's true. And I think you hit on something that makes the dead girl so iconic is our ability to sort of cast her in amber. Especially, you know, we don't care about dead old women. We care about dead girls. We want them young and beautiful so they are preserved for eternity. And in the case of Marilyn Monroe, a lot of those pictures are from, you know, just a few years before she died. But even when she did die, she was still young and beautiful. And for me, when I think of the ultimate dead girl, I think of Elizabeth Short, who is commonly known as the Black Dahlia. This Unsolved Murder from 1947. I wrote about it in my first true crime book called Cold Cases. And I was so frustrated while I was digging into the death of Elizabeth Short. She was found murdered in a park. Her murder was never solved. 
She had these gashes on her face to make it kind of like that Joker thing where it's from both sides of her mouth. And her body was really severely mutilated. And it's one of those cases that at the time people were blowing up about it. There was a lot of wrong information being gone out. There's a lot of speculation. You know, was she sexually active? Was she not? Did she deserve it? Did she not? Was she a virgin? Was she a whore? And there was all that going on. But it is still a case that fascinates people. One, because it's unsolved. Two, probably because she was young and beautiful. And it's, again, what you said. She has no control over anything that is, to this day, written about her. I just Googled the Black Dahlia. And as recently as August of 2023, there's a YouTube history channel clip about her. This is something that people are still fascinated about and still talking about. And one of the reasons why I have such trouble with true crime these days, even as somebody who writes true crime, is this idea of, why are we allowed to tell these stories? Why are we okay with consuming without permission these images, the story, these tales of these women? It's like the prototypical L.A. noir story. And it's so disgusting. You know, she was cut in half. I think she was one of the first where there were crime scene photos that were available or people saw them. And it's kind of in the 1940s and 50s where that starts to be more of a thing where people can see these pictures. And now, oh my gosh, you know, you turn on the ID channel, you will see nasty pictures of people's corpses, you know, all day long. Kids home from school can watch it. And it's something that is super interesting where these images literally do become public property. I think none of us would want that on TV if it were us, but somehow we consider that appropriate to do to these victims and so I think that is also part of the Black Dahlia story is that it was one where that kind of invasive voyeuristic interest was sort of encouraged, you know, was was not considered inappropriate, especially because, yeah, I think people did see her as perhaps being promiscuous or having maybe other moral failings, even though we actually really don't know much about Elizabeth Short at all, and that that made it okay, like, these ideas, these sort of virgin whore kind of imagery was really projected onto her. So you have the dead girl trope, and we see it not just in true crime, but we also see it a lot in popular fiction. Uh, you know, Twin Peaks is fiction. We've also more recently, you've got your mayor of Easttown and, and plenty of other TV shows, movies, if you want to get real wacky, there's the fictionalized versions of like the true of true crime. You know, you've got your Ryan Murphy productions, the O.J. Simpson case. So there is this level beyond true crime of fascination with dead women bodies, with dead girls. How do you think that speaks to where we are and where we have been in society? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I do think well, I don't I don't think I've watched one of these dead girl shows in since my book came out, really, like I'm I'm on a detox in a sense. But nevertheless, I do actually see them changing. I think it's become a trope and a, even like a kind of a joke in culture that this is a tired kind of formula. And in that way, I think there's an incentive to change. But it has to, you know, people, I think people are already getting tired of it to some extent. We're going to take a quick break here. When we get back, though, 
Alice, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on nowadays in the five years since your book when it comes to the dead girl trope. And if you want to hear more from Alice and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment. Today, we're talking about the Playboy Mansion and re-examining the bunny. This is something that Alice has been really digging into, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Shows like The Waves and all the other work that Slate does is really not possible without our amazing Slate Plus members. So if you are a member, thank you. And if you're not considered joining, members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shana Roth, and I'm here with author and dead girl expert Alice Bolin. Alice, before the break, we were talking about the dead girl phenomenon, and I want to dig more into this modern dead girl. And specifically, we were talking a little bit about sort of where the dead girl is now and how people are starting to get sick of the dead girl trope. And it's interesting because in the five years since your book came out, we have been seeing more takes on this trope. So I'm thinking of shows like You. It takes kind of this cheeky approach to the stalking and murdering of women by making the protagonist a very attractive Penn Badgley who obsesses over women and then leaves a trail of bodies in his wake. But he's sarcastic and cute, so we kind of like him. Tonight's the night, Beck. Our first date. It just feels right, right? I'm looking forward to it. And I think, obvious hangover aside, you are too. But I've read people wrong in the past. One day, I'll tell you about Candace. Every red flag I was blind to, how destroyed I was. What can I say? We all have baggage. But I feel like I'm dealing with it the right way. I'm not bothering you, just checking in. So you kind of get a little bit of that, like, oh, I don't know, is it okay? It, it kind of messes with our ingrained desire to know more about psychopaths and kind of says, what are you doing in a weird and interesting way? There's also been plenty of other dead girl shows, but some of them have really kind of twisted things around. I'm thinking of like 13 Reasons Why about a boy named Clay who tries to figure out why a classmate of his named Hannah decided to end her life. This show is credited with giving the dead girl more agency than in past shows. There's also Mayor of Easttown, where the detective investigating the dead girl is a woman. And then we've also had parodies like Netflix's The Woman in the House Across the Street from The Girl in the Window. And Comedy Central's Kroll Show had a sketch that was literally called Dead Girl Town. Poor kid. What do you see? I see a dead girl in the trash. Also, I see glitter on her neck. You think she's a stripper? <laughs> she's a dead girl, isn't she? Sanitation department. Can we say she wasn't found in a pile of trash? <sighs> Fine. You want to tell her parents that? Oh, I'm, I'm bad with parents. Hope you're better with trash. So given that there has been this evolution in how we're thinking about the dead girl, how do you react to this evolution? I think it was inevitable. Like, I mean, even without my, you know, my book, it's more a a broader conversation. I feel like that we're having and including 
I think people are very out and proud now about their true crime love or or interest in, you know, horror or all these things. I think it's a lot less taboo or pulpy or, you know, something, a guilty pleasure necessarily. And I think it actually has caused more interesting conversations to happen. Like even with, I'm thinking more on a true crime side, but like with the death of Gabby Petito, people were talking about, you know, missing white girl syndrome or about how her race played in or about domestic violence um, and how people can hide abusive relationships on social media. You know, it kind of there were these broader and meta conversations that were happening that weren't so focused on her body or her specific story and more about why her story was such a big deal or why she kind of captured the imagination. So I feel like people are kind of getting wise, (laughs) you know, to some of these narratives and some of these rhetorical moves, maybe. I think that self-consciousness was just inevitable. It was going to happen because these have been so, or this kind of strain of crime media has been so pervasive. And Alice, for those of us who are not as familiar with what happened a couple of years ago, can you tell us who Gabby Petito is? She was a relatively small TikTok influencer who was a van life influencer, her and her, um, and she was very, very young. She, I think she was 21, maybe. She and her fiance were kind of trying to make it in on social media, but they weren't particularly popular. But she would make videos about living in a van, going, you know, traveling around the country, going to national parks, stuff like that. And um, her fiance murdered her. There was a huge manhunt to find him. And eventually he his body was found. So he had killed himself. But it is quite clear now that he was very abusive towards her. They were in a really, just a deeply bad situation. Um, And that I think, well, it was a huge case because people on TikTok and on Reddit particularly were super invested, like in finding her, you know, in um, finding her fiance once um, her body had been found. So that kind of cyber sleuthing (laughs) aspect is a part of the case as well. But like I said, also these bigger conversations about, first of all, like her kind of the this white girl obsession, you know, dead white women, even on TikTok. I feel like it became kind of some of the conversation became about the ways that white people are favored on social media and, you know, the really heartbreaking aspect of the domestic violence and abuse that she was hiding, clearly, you know, from her family, from everybody. Let's dig a little bit more into the the white girlness of all of this. You kind of briefly touched on it. Because let's face it, when we talk about dead girls, what we're really saying is dead white girls. And the amazing Gwen Eiffel, she coined that term, missing white girl syndrome, years ago. And for good reason. I mean, the big true crime cases, the big movies, the TV series, all of this that have a dead woman or dead girl, they very frequently come back to white women and girls. Has this element of the dead girl trope evolved at all? I know we've been talking about it more and sort of recognizing it more, but are we just saying, oh no, we've got caught in the missing white woman syndrome again and then not doing anything about it? Or are we actually starting to, I guess, diversify our interest in dead girls? 
I think yes and no. Like, I think there is a level where we see this story over and over again, where we, okay, yeah, we are obsessed with missing white women. Then someone comes out and scolds people for missing white girl syndrome, and it just continues. <laughs> you know, the the narrative doesn't really change. We just are kind of aware of it now. But at the same time, like one of the dead girls who I think about in the past five years is Breonna Taylor, who was killed by police in Louisville and who I think, you know, at the time of the uprising in 2020, she became a huge symbol for not only police violence against black women, which is often ignored, but for the ways that crime against black women is treated. And that I think with the dead girl, there's a level where we love a white woman victim. We love where we consider white women the perfect victims. <laughs> we consider them innocents. We maybe even they stand in for middle class America, whereas maybe black women and girls, indigenous women, who there's been a huge, you know, much more emphasis on the femicide of um, Native women, like particularly in Canada, people talk about this a lot, but that maybe we consider those people like, yeah, of course, that that their deaths are not surprising, even that they are not mysterious. Um, we know why maybe they're killed, because those are people who we in society have cast as expendable, um, whereas white women maybe are considered more valuable. I mean, this is a huge part of the trope. It is like the elephant in the room. And I think our conversations about it have gotten smarter, even with including Breonna Taylor within the uprising as a victim whose death deserves, you know, she deserves to be mourned. But at the same time, I don't think that dead girl shows are going to, I don't know, you're not going to have a trans woman is going to be the victim on a dead girl show in the same way as maybe a cis white teenage girl who's, you know, middle class. I think that is a just a symbol that is so resonant for Americans that that it's sort of part of like one of the essential aspects of these stories. Do you think we can ever escape the dead girl trope? Yeah, I actually do. The, it's funny because when I, so with my book, sometimes people would ask me, well, do you think there's a dead boy show? Or they <laughs> they kind of, you know, they would ask like these questions to sort of reframe like, oh, maybe we will have this same trope, but it will just be kind of like a little bit shifted around. But in a lot of ways, I feel like, in a way that kind of treats the dead girl as this eternal narrative or this, you know, essential thing, when in my mind, it really isn't. Like, Twin Peaks is, you know, 35 years old. It's really quite recent. And it is those, these dead girl shows, in a lot of ways, are the product of backlash against the women's movement. I do think that our, you know, this deep obsession and, you know, interest and in, in our recreating this story over and over again is men fetishizing women as they should be, which is like young, pliable and silent. It's regressive. But I also I, I don't think in in the fact that it is a relatively recent 
development in the state that we have it now. Um, not like, of course, we've always had, you know, female victims. Or you have murder ballads. Violence against women is a constant in, you know, all over the world, sadly enough. This exact, you know, trope or collection of tropes is a really recent thing and is something I think we're already cycling out of because, you know, trends don't, trends just don't last forever. Part of it is also in terms of backlash, maybe, you know, this 80s Reaganite backlash, um, the dead girl enforces a gender divide. So that is very stark and is literally violent. And I think as we have a more nuanced understanding of gender, we get away from this deeply, deeply regressive vision of gender. This kind of story will become moot. It might even become less understandable or less legible to people as we go on. Alice Bolin, author of the amazing Dead Girls book. Thank you so much for joining us here today on The Waves. And thank you guys so much. All right, everyone. I hate to end this episode on a sad note, but unfortunately, production of The Waves has been suspended. This show has been an incredibly personal project for me, and I have loved every minute of it. Thanks to you, the listeners, for your emails, your ideas, and for tuning in with us every week. And of course, thank you to the plethora of hosts and guests that we've had on the show over the years. I hope you've all enjoyed hearing from them as much as I have. We still have some great episodes ahead to close out 2023, so make sure you stick with us to the very end. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shayna Roth, and Vic Whitley-Berry. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would love to hear from you. Please still email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. 